Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash comics online. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. He cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he cried, seven thunders uttered their voice. Converting earthly language into thrust. As you kneel before Azawa, Legend of Zelda's turned to dust. Podcasting from the future like your time was dead and gone. And we rock the best site like ComicsOnline.com. Spoiler alert. You're listening to the Comics Online Podcast. Season 17, Episode 13. Comic Focus. This episode features Kevin Gauss-Wan, Troy David Phillips and Mark Lutz discussing comic books and everything geek pop culture. Spoiler alert. You're listening to the Comics Online Podcast, Season 17, Episode 13. This is going to be the first of a new style of show that we're doing. It is with those who are familiar with uh, Troy David Phillips of Flashback Comics and Woodbridge. It's going to be featuring him and, of course, our host, Kevin Ghostwan, they, where they focus directly on comics, hence the name Comic Focus. They're going to be talking all things comics, the new stuff, the old stuff, all of the things that we love uh, when it comes to the written media that is comic books. So without further ado, let's jump right into episode 13. Here's Kevin and Troy. Hello again, and welcome to the Comics Online Podcast, Season 17, Episode 13. I'm your host, Kevin Goswan, with me today, as usual, is my co-host, Troy David Phillips. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, Troy David Phillips from Flashback Comics in Woodbridge, Virginia. That is normally the greeting that I would give you when I open up one of my spotlight videos that you've been watching on YouTube, but tonight... I am honored to be in the palatial mansion of my good friend, Kevin Goswan. Uh, Kevin has treated us in epic fashion. Uh, it's like royalty. We've been given a fine gourmet meal. Uh, <laughs> I am drinking an exquisite wine. And, uh, man, I tell you, I, I am, I, I'm like the, the, the fatted calf here. I'm being led to the slaughter. <laughs> this might be all for me, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> So uh, we've been we've we've been talking about doing a uh, a comic book uh, centered anyway version of the Comics Online podcast. You know we've been doing the Comics Online podcast for oh almost nine years now. And and let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, if you have not up to this point been checking out the Comics Online episodes, I strenuously recommend that you go back and look at some of the celebrity interviews that you can find on YouTube. You can still find those on YouTube, right? You Kevin? can find them on YouTube. You can find our original channel. Uh, just it, it's uh, youtube.com slash comics online or slash user slash comics online or something to that effect. Just search comics online. Uh, the current one is a is is a group uh, endeavor with uh, with some other outlets as well. It's primarily ours, uh, to be sure. But uh, we this is this is the new one uh, that we use now, and and that is Geek Pop Culture Network. 
Yes, and uh, so Mike Lunsford has a little bit to do with that. Mike Lunsford has a little bit to do with that. He's, Our good friend Mike Lunsford. Mike is uh, is is one of my editors here at Comics Online, and he uh, he's one of the uh, the main podcasters. He's got several shows where he is the main uh, host, and I am a, a co-host or a, or a regular on them. Um, Mike know, is also part of the creative energy that goes into Ethan Stone PI, and he's got some. We're, we're going to just steal his thunder, and and you know what, um, Ethan Stone PI issue three, the long awaited, long awaited, is almost about to come out. So uh, give us another maybe six weeks or so, uh, maybe not even that long. And we could we could very well see Ethan Stone PI number three that we've been waiting for for so long, and that's gonna then that'll tie up the initial uh, arc, and uh, you know then they're they're gonna sit on it for a while, and Mike's gonna come out with some additional comics uh, separate from Ethan Stone, but he will come back to it eventually. Now bringing it back to us, uh, Kevin and I have been talking amongst ourselves. You know, this is Comics Online, and Comics Online has been everything geek pop culture up to this point. But Kevin has me, uh, Troy David, as his friend and co-host, and uh, I have Kevin, my friend and co-host. <laughs> and so, uh, what we want to do is we want to take the opportunity to bring this back to the thing that brought us to the dance in the first place. And I do not mean the limousine service that brought us to prom. No, no, I'm actually talking about comics. Yeah. Um, I drove myself to prom. I wore a top hat. And, you know, my uh, my Escort station wagon. Or, no, wait, sorry. It wasn't the Escort. It was the Mercury Lynx, which is the same thing as an Escort <laughs> for you playing along with the home game. Um and uh, the the top hat didn't fit in. I had to take it off and, and uh, have my date hold it. Uh, shout out to Michael of Spain. Um, I hope there's photographic evidence of this. I want to see that. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, I don't know if I if I've got a picture in the hat. I'm sure I do. Um, and well, I, your mom's got pictures, right? Top hat and tails. Oh, I'm sure she does. Well, okay. I'm sure she does. Uh, hook us up. I can easily find one without the hat while I'm standing there talking with uh, Jim Speckert, and uh, my my date is pretty much ignoring me. I think by then, by by uh, by prom, she was probably starting to tire of me. <laughs> that was that was kind of our relationship, where she was like, "Oh, he seems so worldly and and you know nerdy and geeky and cool." And yet, oh God, he's so fucking clingy, and he's always trying to <laughs> put things in my vagina. Oh, I'm pretty, I'm and pretty sure that was her inner monologue. Um, um, you know, the funny thing is, Michael Spain lives, um, you know, driving distance to where we are now. The, my prom date from high school. She lives in uh, Silver Spring. Yes, I fucking Googled you. Get over it. <laughs> Um, I promise Kevin is not actually stalking. I haven't actually driven by. Now, that would be creepy. <laughs> uh, maybe. Or maybe just par for the course. But anyway, uh, I hear she does well or not. I don't know what she does. I saw, I, I, when, when I Googled her, I saw that she was she had a friend with a restaurant and she made a comment on a review. I don't know. It doesn't matter. All right. Anyway. Anyway, um, hey, so, so so let me let me go. Uh, what I want to do with this uh, first episode of this uh, this particular format, and we'll probably put a, a name to it uh-huh. um, at some point. I don't have a name yet, listeners. If you've got a name, you want to talk about the Comics Online Comic Show, we could call it that, or we could call it something more interesting, or whatever. 
Um, but so uh, Troy and I want to get together, whether it's monthly or bi or semi-monthly. Um, we're we're gonna get together. Uh, we're gonna be like DC Rebirth and come out once every two weeks. Uh, that <laughs> might be a little too much. No, no, once every two weeks that could happen. But but anyway, um, uh, after we, we we started talking about uh, martial arts and stuff, uh-huh. I gotta ask you, Troy. You yes, know, we're, and we're gonna lead into some some real comic stuff, but but yep. for a peripheral to to comics. Troy, how far did you get in the Iron Fist series? Okay, so <clears throat> here's what's happened. Uh, you know, I was uh, getting over uh, my sprained ankle last week. and uh, You I didn't like, just watch the whole thing while you were sprained? No, actually, because I you had... you wanted to play along while you were in front of your TV. Well, I had so much reading to do. <laughs> and I spent And so I spent all of that time with my ankle elevated getting caught up in my reading. And I got very, very deep into my backlog. Listeners, he could not reach the uh, the, the uh, remote control for his TV, and his wife actually works for a living. <laughs> and his cats are cats. They're little assholes. And so they were like, nope, hell no. I'm, I'm, then they go and swipe it, swipe the, the, the remote control out of his reading. Now, see, people who follow me on Facebook know that my cats are precious and adorable. They're curled up in my lap. They were looking at my injury. They were seen to my needs as best they could. They were providing me with love and warmth and comfort. Uh, my wife actually was very, very helpful and supportive the entire time that I had sprained my ankle. <laughs> but, <clears throat> but I was able to, over the course of four days, read 80 comics Five trade paperbacks and hardcovers, and I read uh, Roy Thomas's Alter Ego and the Jack Kirby Collector Magazine of that month, uh, the JSA All-Star Squadron Companion Magazine. I read a lot of things. And what 80 comics? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, 80 individual <laughs> new books. And then I can't count the number of back issues that I also read. I didn't think to count them. You know, one of the things I read, Kevin, and this would <laughs> this would be of interest to you, okay, is because me. you're you're a Spider-Man fan. Uh, the Amazing Spider-Man is one of your favorite characters, and I Certainly. know this. Yeah. Um, I did not realize that I owned it, but when I did, I pulled it out so that I could reread it. Was the first appearance of Captain Jean DeWolf and her brother Brian the Wraith. I didn't realize that I owned the four Marvel two Marvel team ups that comprised her first appearance. But I did. I didn't even remember that Gene DeWolf's brother was the Wraith. Yes, the Wraith. There's more than one Wraith, though, right? Uh, I believe there has been another character called the Wraith since then. Okay. Um, Funny thing, uh, sort of funny thing, uh, I was was in the sixth grade when I first was introduced to the Wraith and Captain Gene DeWolf, and actually also Jasper Sitwell, agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. I was reading... uh, a current Iron Man, Invincible Iron Man, at that time, I want to say it was issue 106. Uh, Tony Stark was looking at a hostile takeover of Stark Enterprises from uh, Mordecai Midas. Midas had taken control of Stark's spare armors, and so like this whole army of Iron Man armors are attacking, and Iron Man teamed up with Jack of Hearts and... uh, Kevin O'Brien, the guardsman, and Gene DeWolf, and Jasper Sitwell, and Whitney Frost as Madame Mask, and the Wraith are fighting off these Iron Man armors until they are eventually overwhelmed. The story does not end with issue 106, 
But that was my introduction. Um, from there, I recognized the Wraith, and so I picked up these Marvel team-ups, not realizing what I had in my hands when I had it. It sometimes takes me a while to read these back issues when I acquire them, so, oh, hey, look, this is the first appearance of a major character. I love Gene DeWolf. I was sad. I was misty-eyed. I admit it. I'm not too, too, too proud to admit. I nearly cried during the Sin Eater storyline with the death of Gene DeWolf. You remember that one, Kev? I do. I do. And, and I, you know, that, that was one of those things where I, uh, the, the, the concept of the Sin Eater was, uh, you know, brought into my, you know, understanding of, of the world. Like, well, that was really a thing at yes. some point? That's yes. so weird. Um, the character was chilling in a way, but, you know, Spider-Man, and I think this is part of why Spider-Man is such a popular character, is... Spider-Man had a way of bringing these types of stories right into your lap. You know, just... Oh, yeah. It's... He's, a lot of great writers. Do you, do you remember who, who was writing in, uh, that uh, arc? I, I don't. It would have been close to the time that David Michelinie was on The Amazing Spider-Man. If I remember correctly, the Sin Eater storyline was in Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man. Yeah. Um, there was, I, I want to say, you know, back then, the, the my, uh, my, my perception at the time of uh, Amazing Spider-Man was the action, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and the, uh, the four color villains and this sort of thing. And team up to a lesser extent. And yeah, oh yeah, definitely and team up. Um, you know, and Amazing Spider-Man would also have, you know, occasional team ups as well, um, you know, because it's. You know, it's Spider-Man, after all. He was the, the, the flagship character. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but Peter Parker was more, not, not just about Peter and his day-to-day uh, -day, non spiderman life, but, you know, even when he is, you know, whether or not he's Spider-Man, it, it was a heavier, um, more cerebral, more mature, and I don't mean like, you know, this, was, this is, I'm talking 80s at this point. Yeah, yeah. You know, this isn't TNA and swearing, right. but it is mature themed. Like, I remember one uh, one particular issue that was uh, that was kind of a, uh, the, uh, the the dangers of guns, you know, the dangers yes. of handguns issue. Do you yes. remember that one? Yes, I do. Something I about a gun. The I story arc was called Something About a Gun. I remember that. I remember reading that over and over, and, you know, and... I couldn't have been like more than like seventh grade, and I was like, "Whoa, this yeah. is this is some serious shit." Oh, absolutely. Oh, thank you, Kevin. Yeah. Um, yeah. Peter Parker to me was more not not exclusively, but more of a character driven story series mm -hmm. uh, where Amazing was really more about the Amazing Spider Man. Yeah. But let's face it, they did not skimp on the Aunt May. They did not skimp on the Harry Osborn, the Betty sure. Brant, yeah. the Ned Leeds. Peter had a very interesting supporting cast, sure. uh, and Spider-Man isn't Spider-Man without that supporting cast. And, and honestly, I, I wish they would go back to to that uh, that style, that approach where you've got you know where, where you've got you know here is a Spider-Man where it's uh, where it's action adventure, and here is a Spider-Man where it's you know where it's the uh, the drama. Well, you know the 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 the, the system of storytelling now. <clears throat> the the more modern era, if you will. Uh, I don't know if you had the opportunity to read some of the more recent Spider-Man limited series, and I don't mean uh, 
Jeez, a dead no more of a clone conspiracy. <laughs> oh, a dead no but, more. Uh, and and not that. you know that was that was fairly decent. I I kind of that artist I kind of am hot and cold with. I can't remember who he is. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Um, but uh, but I I did like that story. I I, I kind of expected to not like it. And and I really, when, I really when, did when, enjoy it. When the when the story arc is named Dead No More: The Clone Conspiracy, you can't yeah, help but think that you're not going <laughs> to like this. That we're going to go back to the 1990s clone saga. Oh my God, Ben Riley! But if you have not read that series, but you plan to, stop listening because I don't want to throw spoilers at you. Stop listening now and come back later after you've read that. Okay, that's plenty of warning. <laughs> if you read it, well, then you know that Ben Riley is the jackal. I wasn't actually expecting that. Yeah. I was expecting that Miles Warren was going to be important. I didn't think that Miles Warren was going to have the role that he had. Ben Riley, hmm. I'm not really sure that I expected Ben Riley to be where he was, when he was, as he was. Um, when Ben Riley was dangling the whole "I could bring Uncle Ben back," yeah, for a moment I thought that would be Peter's Achilles' heel. I thought that this is going to be the moment of weakness, even more than uh, that would have pissed. Brand me off. new day. I'm really glad that they that, that he didn't fall for that because you know this is the sort of thing right where I you know if that were to happen I would have been you know I would have flipped tables and been like this is a cheap way to go because Peter has been been around this block before and and we don't need to see that again right well you know I don't know that we have ever actually seen you know, unlike the Winter Soldier in Captain America uh, unlike the Gwen Stacy clone that Miles Warren brought out I don't know that we've actually seen Ben Parker walking around as a real Ben Parker without traveling through time Traveling through time or a different dimension. Because we did that. We've traveled through time. We've traveled to other dimensions. But to see our Ben Parker back on his feet, they haven't done that to us. And I think most Spider-Man writers respect and appreciate the death of Gwen... I'm sorry, the death of Ben Parker as necessary to the gravatas of Spider-Man. But I would actually be curious, and I say intellectually curious... What if someone did bring Ben Parker back? Would Spider-Man go through any lengths to put Ben back into his eternal rest? Would Spider-Man try to cope? I mean, I, I don't know what he would do. I don't know what the writers would do. And it would it would take a very, very good writer to even tackle the concept of toying with Ben coming back to life. Someone, you know, maybe someone would go to the gates of heaven and bring Ben back because Peter needs Ben as his moral compass again. Who knows what what you'd come up with? It would take the best writers. I mean, you know, th- this would have to be Brian K. Vaughn and Mark Millar and you know, Brian, you know, uh, Bendis. Brian Bendis and yeah. just everybody. It would take. It would take five of the best writers working in concert to even make the story mean something. Oh, and then you also have to bring back, you know, your your older uh, writers. Who did who did we recently bring back as an old Jerry Conway? Jerry Conway, coming Jerry back Conway, to right? Spider Man right? again. That was fun, you know. Um, there is a part of me that feels that modern writers 
have a great deal of respect for the writers that came before them, for paving the way, for sort of setting them up. But new writers are also tasked with breaking new ground and going forward into directions that haven't been gone into before. Now, the challenge of that, though, is finding a launch point. And certain writers want to kind of roll the clock back to a launch point and then launch forward again. So you end up retreading some ground. It, it's unfortunate that you have to. Go well, and then that's it. and you know that's going to be the case in in, in any sort of uh, long spanning medium. If you go, I mean, what do, what do comics have aside aside from comics that you know with a with a with a, a long spanning uh, uh, continuum of the same characters? Because you know Peter Parker is still Peter Parker, right? And you know from 1962 to today. You know, I mean, you want to talk about Batman and Superman, they're still those same characters. And Wonder Woman. Yeah, and Wonder Woman. You and know. Steve Rogers, Captain America. Right. And, uh, and, you know, and they're, they're, you know, you've got a ton of characters that, that span, you know, 80 years or more. It, it is really, a, I can only imagine, I say it's really hard, I don't know this from experience, but I imagine that it is very difficult to take a character who has 40 or 50 or 70 or 76 years of continuity and reinvent them for a modern audience and especially an audience that is accustomed to digesting information and entertainment differently than you and I did. Well, you you have things and where I was going was the only other thing aside from comic books that you have that is anywhere near the same sort of, you know, long narrative with the same characters is you know are uh, the you know the longest running um, soap operas? Yes, you know, and it, people you know people have said I have certainly said you know many times before that that comic books are you know are uh, are soap operas. Right. Ultimately, you know they you know you've got these these characters and they die and then oh they're back and you know the the villains and the, you know and yet they're. Uh, you know they they're captured and then they're they they gotten away and then you you, you get off into the crazy town. Um, well, you know I I kind of feel like, <clears throat> and, and I'm I'm going to make an analogy to Star Trek for just a moment. Okay. I feel like it is possible to take a franchise, hmm. you know, like a comic book, if you would, yeah, uh, and begin with say, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Star Trek: The Original Series. And then launch forward into Star Trek The Next Generation. New characters, new directions, new situations. Mm-hmm. Same with, universe. In the same universe. And we see old McCoy, old Spock, old Scotty at some points in time. We have the feature film Generations, which bridges the original series and the original feature films into the next generation. Uh and then the next generation spawns sideways into Deep Space Nine and Voyager. What I'm looking forward to would be a Star Trek that goes past those points. Something like uh, the Titan novel series where uh, Captain Riker takes command of the USS Titan. Okay. As he, you know, from the end of uh, Star Trek Nemesis. Okay. And then the Titan launches into its own missions. Now those are novels, but I feel like that could be a series, or at least a film series, mm-hmm. um, and we could continue to go forward instead of going backward and rebooting like 
J.J. Abrams has done with the Star Trek reboot. Well, Frakes can direct because you know he's got some directing chops these days. Jonathan Frakes can direct. Jonathan <laughs> Frakes is not the only one that can direct. No, no, I'm just saying he directs a lot of stuff. Well, you so know, much good stuff, and he's got chops. I can't wait. To, I can't wait. I I want to see where he goes from here. Yeah. Uh, because you know, the more you do it, the better you get at it. Yeah. He's good. Everything can improve. So what? What are you ready to have your socks blown off when Jonathan Frakes comes back even better than he was before? Well, you know, (laughs) here's the thing. You know, we we, to to uh, return to your previous analogy. I I feel like Jonathan Uh Jonathan Frakes is now you know a black belt, (laughs) and now is the time that he needs to show us how he can really shine. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So. You know, Star Trek has shown us that it is possible to launch farther forward than we are right now and to always continue going forward. I can't help but feel that comic books on the whole are held back by a sense of nostalgia. That Oh, I there's, disagree. There, there, well, that to some extent, not to a full extent, not all the way across the board, that we have to keep Peter Parker being Spider-Man. And that... When Peter Parker gets too far developed, we have to roll the clock back. I hate we have that. to have a. I, yeah, hate, I hate it, that. but you understand. You know, brand new day. You mm. saw it the same as I did. Oh, and I hated it. You know, and hated it. I, I stopped collecting uh, Spider-Man books. Now, I, I'll say from myself as a reader, I was upset about the brand new day, but immediately following brand new day itself. The stories that came afterwards were good. Right, and it's it's one of those things where it's like I, I completely hated the premise. Right. And so I couldn't I, I, I couldn't bring myself to to continue on, even though, you know, you had you know, you had these wonderful little three issue was it three issue arcs? Th- there were shorter arcs, yeah, and like there were things like the gauntlet. And, and so you had a creative team that would go three issues, another creative team that would go three issues or, or more, yeah. but whatever. But they would be fairly short arcs, and the, but a one creative team, and you know and they would come out, what was they, weekly? They or were bi-weekly? three times a month. Three times a month. Because they had taken away the other two Spider-Man titles, yeah. Amazing came out three times a month, but there wasn't a Peter Parker, there wasn't a Friendly Neighborhood, there wasn't a Web of, there wasn't a Marvel team up. Yeah. So you only had one Spider-Man book about to buy. Yeah, remember, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, but I, yeah, I, you know, and I, I would like to see, I would like to see eventually, you know, and they don't have to do it today or tomorrow or this decade. But I would like to see a return to that style of, of storytelling in Marvel. I am okay with the concept of a legacy being passed on that like for example i'm gonna jump over to dc comics for a second in the crisis on infinite earths we saw the death of barry allen and from barry allen's death we saw wally west take up the costume take up the ring and put on the guise of the flash no longer is wally west kid flash he's matured he's an adult now he's not the kid sidekick time has moved forward Wally West is now The Flash. Yeah. And for 22 years, Wally West was the... Wally was The Flash almost as long as Barry had been The Flash in total publishing years. Yeah, um, and, and you know, and I felt the same way about Green Lantern. 
Yes. Kyle Rayner took over from where Hal Jordan was gone. Yeah. Hal Jordan had moved on in death and become the Spectre, uh, you know, and on and on. I am okay with a legacy transfer transferring. And I think that the most beautiful ex- example of this, and I say this again and again, the most beautiful example of this in comics is the JSA series. Um, you know, from well, a, f- a few different uh, versions, uh, iterations of the JSA series, Justice Society of America, um, which you know, listeners, you you will have seen on Smallville a version, and you will have seen on uh, Legends of Tomorrow a version. If you see the name Jeff Johns as the author, then the series is going to be good. <laughs> well, yes. If that's you true. see the name James Robinson, <clears throat> then the series is going to be good. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> um point is within jsa you had these golden age characters these these characters from the 30s 40s 50s and uh, you know who have who have moved on who are you know most of which have aged you know and they're they're old or they're dead um most of them have simply aged but yeah a couple of them i think had died mr terrific had actually died yeah and there was a new, young Mr. Terrific that took over that legacy. Mm-hmm. But he was partnered with the original Hawkman, the original Flash, Jay Garrick, the original Alan Scott. Mm-hmm. So he had the old guard with him. And Mr. Terrific, Stargirl, Power Girl. Oh, right, yeah, you had you had Stargirl who you know who you know carried on the, the carried the torch from. From the original Starman to you know to uh, intermediate uh, James Robinson Starman to Stargirl, right? And then you and then you have Our Man, you know, who is the what son or grandson? And then you had uh, the son, and then you had what Commander Steel, who's who's in Legends of Tomorrow. Well, you know, it's funny because Commander Steel is a character that has had his story. I don't know, tweaked I, a bit, tweaked. <laughs> yeah, it's lot. like you can't even really say rebooted, like. The original Steel, the Indestructible Man, set in World War II. Yeah. One, he's not actually a World War II character. That's a Roy Thomas creation from the 1970s. Um, I didn't even realize that. Yeah, yeah. There wasn't a Commander Steel in the 1940s. So it was kind of a retcon into, into the Golden Age? And he was pushed into the All-Star Squadron, but he was a very good character for the All-Star Squadron. Okay. Then there was a Steel who was said to be the grandson of the original Commander Steel uh, for the Justice League. Now, this was when we still had a multiple Earth thing going on in Earth 1, Earth 2. Steel of the Justice League was Earth 1. Commander Steel of the JSA, All-Star Squadron, was Earth 2. So how do we get from one grandfather to the grandson... And this is where the stories become a little bit muddied. Well, but they relaunched Steel or a version of Steel as Citizen Steel yeah. when Earth One and Earth Two had been merged. All oh, right, you yeah, know, yeah. pre-Infinite Crisis era. So, so you know, so my thing is okay. If you if you need to to have a, a crisis or two to um, oh, dogs outside. Um, uh, to fix things up, to straighten out the the continuity, to uh, to let us know, okay, here's what happened as of now. This is what really happened. Right. Fine, because I, you know, this oh, for for decades and decades of of continuity, you need to straighten things out and say, you know, and, and and revise history. Okay, okay, we understand. 
But well, you know there 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 are ways to do that, and I'm going to come back. I'm going to put a pin in that. You, okay. you go ahead and finish your thought. But uh, we can. Um, I, I I can appreciate this sort of uh, this sort of legacy being passed on, and I feel like this is uh, this is what we're getting to in in Marvel, where we've got. Um, you know where we've got multiple Captain Americas, multiple Captain Marvel, multiple, you know, you know, generations of Ms. Marvel, generations of uh, of Spider Man, and and I think you know people, you know, some people are, you know, uh, freaking out about that. Well, but I, I think I, I think it's only great. I, I think I think some people don't understand what is actually happening. <clears throat> I Wasp I and fear Iron them. Man and well, Thor. Here's the thing. So, Thor, let's start there. Okay. People see that Jane Foster has the hammer of Thor. So, there is a woman with the hammer, with the power, and the first thing people say is, why did they make Thor a woman? Actually, they haven't. Thor, Odin's son, is still a character, and he is separate and distinct from Jane Foster. It's just that he doesn't have the hammer right now. But Thor Odin's son hasn't become a woman. Listeners, do you have an ex-wife who still carries your last name? It's the same thing. So she's she just going around with his name. So And his power, which is like his wallet. <laughs> so Sam Wilson has the shield of Steve Rogers, the old indestructible vibranium shield, which used to be vibranium adamantium. That's how I remember it. It's uh, not anymore? No, it's just pure vibranium now. What? Someone took away the adamantium vibranium mix. I want to say it's Fox. Fucking Fox. It was before Fox. Was it? Yes. But Sam, Captain America. I can get out my Ohatmu and say it's there. Right, right. And that's what I see. But I have also read the Avengers and read through the story. (sighs) Bear in mind, the, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe isn't a thing anymore. And it's wow. sad, and it's unfortunate, and I miss it. And there was one; they, they had an update. Not they, long they ago, they did updates. Well, that update uh-huh. is more than five years old. No, it's since I've lived here. I've only lived here for three years. You may have seen older issues that no? have come into your possession, but yeah, yeah, I think I think 2012 was the last time we had no hot move at really? all. Really? Yeah. I thought I bought one from you. Well, you did, but it wasn't new. <laughs> okay, if you say so. I, I mean, um, you you are the the comic book salesman. You, well, you know, I, I do sell comic books. That's what it says on the back of his cape, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> if, if I could throw my two cents in here with the caveat, Mark Lutz, ladies and gentlemen. Hi. Um, again, with the, the caveat that I am not nearly the the level of aficionado as everybody else is, but but we're working on him. Talking about passing a legacy and, you know, characters aging or characters not aging or, you know, resetting at this point or what have you, how are you going to transfer the legacy of a symbol? Which, you know, for me, my favorite characters are, are Captain America, are Superman, are, you know, Batman, the, you know, the classics, not because of the characters who have been around for generations and you know keep rehashing the same old stories because really what haven't they already done that can be rewritten but it's 
it's the symbol that they are, and it's what they stand for. Well, now, oh, whole, no, go ahead, on. go ahead. So, you know, for example, the the parallel of Captain America and Superman for you know again the casual readers, you know, point of view is they're essentially the same character in the different universes, standing for roughly the same thing. I personally prefer Cap over Superman because of the presentation. But ultimately, and this was one of the the, uh, the things I wrote uh, uh, when Civil War came out, is the the symbology that's behind it, especially with with you know these two, Cap and Superman, they stand for everything that's good and right and pure, and they do these things because that's how it's supposed to be done, not because it's the easy way to do it. They represent all of the good things that we aspire to become and are afraid to reach out for because we're afraid we might actually get there. And looking, again, at these these generational characters of Cap and Superman and Batman, how do you transition that? How do you pass that legacy on to the next without losing the symbology? You know, it's it's like the line in Batman is is... You know the 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 bat is a symbol that inspires fear. You can't kill a symbol, right? So, so you're talking about the Christopher Nolan Batman Begins, mm-hmm. which of the three movies, I think Batman Begins is solidly the best one Christopher Nolan directed. But to answer your question, so to take Captain America separate from Superman for just a moment, because Cap is really it's Steve Rogers is poured into the symbology. We've made you the super soldier. And we could have just put you in a uniform and given you a rifle and sent you off to war, but we poured you into this red, white, and blue costume. We gave you this star symbol to stand behind. So since we have made you into an iconic American image, then here is now the legacy. But wasn't he that beforehand? Well, yes, but very understated. Because remember, Steve Rogers... Steve Rogers, from the beginning, was simply a noble young man who wanted to do his part. He would but, have been but the why. But it's the why that sets him apart. Sure. But all Steve... You know, bear in mind, all Steve wanted to do was put on a uniform, be given a rifle, and fight Nazis. Not because he was bloodthirsty or kill crazy, but because there was this great evil in the world and he wanted to do his part fighting it. But he would have been content to do that anonymously like everyone else putting on a uniform. People don't put on that uniform for glory and individualism. They are part of something greater than themselves. That is the essence of the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Air Force, the Army. Steve, however, was given the opportunity to stand on a grander platform. So he is in this red, white, and blue costume. He is given this indestructible shield. He fights the symbology of the red skull, the ultimate icon of Nazism at that time. Um, The legacy of Captain America gets passed on to the next individual who either A, shares his symbology, or B, actually wears that uniform. Retroactive continuity. When Steve Rogers is frozen and disappears, the government doesn't want to lose the momentum of Captain America. So they pass the costume, or a replica of the costume, and a replica of the shield, 
onto William Naslin, the Spirit of 76. Spirit of 76 takes on the Captain America mantle until he is killed. He is supplanted by Jeff Mace, the Patriot, puts on the Captain America costume, takes up a replica of the shield. This legacy gets passed on so that to the eyes of the American public, we are never without a Captain America, but in fact now three men have been Cap. In the 1950s, when Cap had been retired, you know, we're in peacetime. Uh, at that point in time, I, I don't think the Korean War had started yet. Captain America was commie smasher Cap. Uh, this was the very jingoistic 1950s, you know, again, 1953, 1954, somewhere that ballpark. Cap is reintroduced as if it were always the original Captain America. That was Stan Lee's intention. In fact, retroactive continuity has this as a fourth man wearing the costume, carrying a replica of the shield, and this is why he is so jingoistic, why he is so ultra-conservative, or even reactionary, I guess would be a better term, um, until his time ends. The next time we see Captain America is in the pages of the Avengers. Cap is relaunched in the Avengers, and he very quickly becomes the centerpiece of a team that already existed for three issues before he came out. Moving very quickly through the eras of Cap, not only do we see other people wear the costume to keep it going. If Steve Rogers puts the costume down and walks away, somebody else picks it up and puts it on because, air quotes, we need Captain America. <clears throat> if Cap doesn't actually put the costume down and walk away, however... There have always been other characters like Dennis Dunphy, Demolition Man, that Kevin has probably read a whole bunch of Demolition Man. D-Man. D-Man was a good character, and he idolized Cap. He wanted to step up and be a hero. Vance Astrovic, uh, young Vance Astrovic, a.k.a. Marvel Boy, a.k.a. Justice of the New Warriors, later of the Avengers, he was also idolizing Cap. He wanted to step up and be a hero. In the pages of Captain America, we saw characters like Jack Flag and Free Spirit. They put on red, white, and blue costumes. They had motifs of patriotism. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they, while they weren't trying to be Cap, they were their own person, but they wanted to also carry, Cap inspired them. They wanted to carry on. They wanted to wear the colors, carry the concepts of patriotism, freedom, liberty, justice for all. The things that Cap spoke of and spoke to us, you know, he spoke of, well, everything that is good about the concept of America. That comes out of Steve Rogers' mouth. These other characters heard those words and were moved by them. And that's where you carry on the fire of that legacy. And such is the power of the symbol. Yes. So is, in, in the context of this conversation, and I think we're, we're viewing this point a little bit differently here, is Captain America a person with a genetic lineage that can follow? Or is Cap a symbol that stands for everything that we could be? Uh, he is a little bit of both. He is more of the symbol because... Cap, the comic book character, Cap, the franchise, Cap, 
the copyright, the trademark, isn't allowed to be married, to have children, to have the life and family that the rest of us take for granted. Um, because these things are inimically not good for sequential storytelling. Or can it also be seen that even though from from the, the storylining and the, the storyboarding and the plotlining and everything like that, but would it fit with that character? Would a character that's got the 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 moralistic sensibility and the unselfish character that knows who he is, knows yes. what he stands for, knows that at every corner some enemy could be jumping out and, and doing whatever, as much as Steve Rogers, the individual, would want to marry Peggy Carter and have a family, would he, as Captain America, the symbol allow that to happen and risk putting Peggy in that situation? The answer to that question is unfortunately multiformed based on A, when we're talking about, and B, who the creative teams are. Peggy Carter, as you're most familiar with uh, from World War II, Captain Peggy Carter is very, very, very capable. So if I turn my back and a bad guy grabs Peggy, there's a very good chance that that bad guy is going to get a 45 in his face. Because Peggy can take care of herself. She's not a damsel in distress. She's not a shrinking violet. She is very capable. And that makes her a good romantic match for Cap. Flash forward into comics. Peggy Carter's grandniece, Sharon Carter, Agent 13, Captain America Winter Soldier. Sharon Carter is a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. She can take care of herself. She's also a good match for Cap. And we know Sharon from comics. Steve and I, or Steve. Uh, Kevin and I certainly do. Um, <laughs> uh, also Steve. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it, 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 Kevin is sitting here in his Captain America boxers right now. It's kind of scary. <laughs> oh, was I supposed to be wearing real clothes? Sorry. <laughs> Only on camera. Only on camera. Yeah. Okay, so, so, so then so those of you who aren't listening to, to the uh, watch, watching the video version of this podcast are missing out. You're so. really missing out. So uh, Captain America at one point in the comics is dating uh, Bernadette Rosenthal, uh, a young Brooklyn woman of Jewish heritage who connects with Cap on the level that this Bernie is representative of the, of the America that he defends. It's like, oh. And so this is what I'm protecting. You're nice. You're pretty. You're intelligent. You're a career-minded woman. You have motivations. And I connect with you. Whatever happened to her? I mean, during, during the old... Uh... She went away to law school, and she got her law degree. Uh, did yeah. she come back? Uh, she did actually come back to visit Steve. I don't know where she is right now, but the last time we saw her, she got her law degree and become a successful lawyer. All right. Um, now, Steve has had tangential romantic inclinations I don't know if you remember the uh, Captain America and the Falcon series from 2005 with uh, Scarlet Witch uh, before No More Mutants before yeah. M-Day and Decimation oh yeah I do remember a little bit about that but I remember I, I remember Captain as a Scarlet kid, Witch shared Bernie. a kiss and uh, Steve was a little uncomfortable with himself over that given their comparative age differences and Scarlet Witch, who is certainly a legal adult, you know, certainly capable of making her own decisions, she tells Steve, "Get over it, Steve. You're you're uncomfortable because you're 50 years older than me. 
you are 50 years older than everybody. <laughs> so, so let's let's step to the other cross on the avenue here and let's look at, at Cal-El. Okay. Now, no. Cal, a little bit different because while Cal is our, symbolically, the paragon of truth, justice, and the American way, and this is how Cal-El Superman was presented to us in the 1940s, 1950s. Uh, today, Superman iconically represents that which is best among us all, but not exclusively as an American. Think of him as a citizen of Earth. Um, which he gets to later, because if you... you know. mm-hmm. So, okay, we'll, we'll yeah, pick, do this in two stages here. Yeah, yeah, pick, pick, pick a point that you would like to begin with him, because, and you are perfectly correct, that Cal has morphed from a very American-centric character to an Earth-centric character. Um, and this is something that I sometimes talk about with people when I talk about Superman, is how I like to look at Kal-El. He, he, he is an immigrant. Uh, he came to Earth as a baby. He was raised by the Kents in Smallville, Kansas. And the Kents taught him to go to Sunday school on Sundays, to respect his elders, to work hard for what he wanted, to not use his gifts selfishly and to not belittle his fellow man to help out when someone less fortunate needed help. He has these very Midwestern core values. You think of small town America, middle America, and Cal has that. To look at Cal-El as a, again, air quotes, I'm making finger quotes. To look at Cal-El as an alien, I have a hard time doing that. Because the Kents took him as a baby and gave him all of this. He knows Smallville, Kansas. He knows Jonathan and Martha Kent. He knows everything that is America much better than he knows Krypton because he was brought up here day by day. So I think of Superman, and I think the best version of Superman is where he first identifies himself as an American citizen who protects all of Earth and he understands that he may have come from Krypton, but Krypton did not make him what he is today. All right. So, so hold on to all that in the sidebar. Yep. <laughs> Let's go into the, the whole question of really who wins the fight, Superman or Batman. My, no, no, hold on. Let me finish. That's a legitimate question. Okay. So as we have seen in the covers of, for example, Batman Hush, where Batman has... The time to set up, to plan, to gather his resources, to pull Superman away from everything that he can use to help himself. And Batman whoops his ass. But, going back to the sidebar now, with the way that Kal-El was raised, with those Midwestern sensibilities, and especially the sensibilities of respecting and caring for life, if Kal-El disregards that and stops holding back how badly does Bruce Wayne get his ass kicked well so let, let me let me very quickly answer that question for you classically and, and I say classic let's let's say silver age bronze age Superman this is a character who you know, we think of Batman as being very intelligent Batman has studied and he has studied a variety of everything Superman, classically is a character who could sit down in the library of congress 
and memorize every book in the Library of Congress inside of 10 hours. On top of the universal knowledge that he has from the crystals in the Crystal Palace. Right. Well, and, and I'm getting away from that for just a half a second. Demonstrating what this man is capable of. <clears throat> Superman is capable of lifting the, the Great Pyramid of Giza if it were physically possible to lift the pyramid without the pyramid crumbling under its own weight. Superman is able to sit on the moon with telescopic vision and stare into, oh, I don't know, Wayne Manor in Gotham City. And once he sees Wayne Manor with his telescopic vision, he could use his telescopic vision to piggyback his heat vision and send an invisible laser beam from the moon to Gotham City. If Superman were so inclined, if Superman were General Zod, Batman would have been dead in the five seconds that it took me to even describe that. So, going back to the symbology of it. Now, back to the symbology, yes. With all of that conversation that we just had, and again, the, the obvious parallels between Captain America and Superman, we can also add, in my mind, we can also add the, the virtue of restraint to Superman that we don't necessarily attribute to Captain America. Well, Cap has some physical restraint because Cap obviously doesn't punch every normal criminal and saboteur and kill them in a single blow. Cap is anywhere from three to five times the, the strength of a normal human being, you know, depending on who's writing him, depending on the time period he's depicted. Uh, it would, however, be very easy if Mike Tyson could punch a man in the face and kill him, and Mike Tyson could in his prime, Captain America could just as casually do so. He doesn't. But if you escalate the villain that Cap fights, then he has to hold himself back less so. Superman, if he needed to clip Lex Luthor with a punch, if he were to do so, he would restrain himself. But if Superman were fighting Darkseid, he wouldn't restrain himself. He wouldn't have to. Darkseid is the apocalyptic god of evil. So at some point, all of these characters know when they can truly unload on their nemesis and when they can't. Um, they're, and, and it's a thing. You know, I, I refer to it as the hot blood of conflict. There's a point where if Captain America were fighting the Red Skull and the Red Skull passed out unconscious and was clearly unable, unable to defend himself, Cap would stop hitting him. Cap would shackle the Red Skull and drag him before the world court and make him stand trial in the middle of the United Nations or the middle of you know Sweden or wherever you would hold, hold world court hearings. But if the Red Skull were conscious and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting until one punch made the difference between life and death, Cap would punch the Red Skull and kill him because the Red Skull wouldn't stop fighting. So if it were the difference of hot blood versus cold blood, that's where your restraint comes in. Superman would try to hold himself back from killing, but as we saw in Superman 75, the death of Superman, the climactic battle with Doomsday, if it comes down to it and there's no way to save the day other than Doomsday is a mindless killing machine and he needs to be destroyed. Superman strikes the blow that kills Doomsday before he himself keels over dead. 
So why doesn't Cap do that to the Red Skull when the Red Skull is knocked out cold, knowing that doing so could just cut the head off the snake? Is it is it really restraint, or is it because he knows, because he's an intelligent guy, that because Steve Rogers, as the symbol of Captain America and everything that symbol stands for, knows that doing that is simply the wrong thing to do and completely goes against everything that he stands for? Well, yes, you're right. It does go against everything he would stand for. Think about this. Steve Rogers, even if Steve Rogers had not been given the super soldier serum, if Steve Rogers had not become Captain America, if Steve Rogers didn't have asthma and polio and everything else that was wrong with him, he would have done what? He would have volunteered for army service. He would have been accepted into the military. He would have been trained, given a rifle, sent to Europe. And he would have killed German soldiers. He was prepared to do that. And he would have been taught, when they're shooting at you, you shoot back. And if you have to shoot them and kill them, yes. If they surrender, you accept their surrender and take a prisoner of war. There are conventions that soldiers are disciplined to accept. This is how you have prisoners of war in the first place. So... Yeah, Cap would restrain himself the same way any other soldier would, the same way any moralistic soldier would. Good soldiers, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to talk about, you know, war criminals and whatnot. That, that's, you know, tangential to the conversation. It's a distraction. But your average soldier, when his enemy surrenders to him, throws down his weapon, puts his hands up, that's it. I capture you in the name of my side. You are now a prisoner of war. I will no longer shoot at you or beat you or club you or stab you or whatever. If, however, the soldier continues to fight, this is the hot blood of combat, and, hey, I had to kill you to stop you because you wouldn't stop fighting. So, yeah, if, again, the Red Skull falls face down, passed out unconscious, Cap is going to stop brutalizing him. Right, okay, so... And has now taken a prisoner of war. Granted, but with all of that in mind, and looking back at, at Steve Rogers' upbringing and the little bit that we know about his childhood and everything that that he wholeheartedly and, and unequivocally believes in, in the American way and right and wrong, and we do these things because it's the right thing to do, how much of that goes into building the symbol? How much of that personal belief structure, coupled, of course, with the the abilities that he gets with the super soldier serum, how much how much of that symbol is Steve Rogers, and how much of Steve Rogers is that symbol? How do you pass that on to another generation? Well, how do you you know the the answer to your question is the symbol that you know the the very nature of Captain America. Most of that is Steve. Some of that is the cloth that Steve is wrapped in. The American government has given you a costume. The American government has given you the shield. The American government has provided you with specialized training. Your morality, all right, the morality is all Steve. That is, for the most part, in line, but still somewhat different from your general soldier mentality. Um... You pass that on to the next generation like Steve did with Bucky 
and with every other protege he's ever had since then. Steve Rogers worked with Jack Monroe, uh, the Nomad. Steve Rogers worked with D-Man. Steve Rogers has worked with Rick Jones and many other individuals where he has said, hey, this is what is right and this is what is wrong. Strangely enough, the people that have been attracted to Steve were people who were willing to accept what he was selling at that time. Um, now, you have to understand that the comic code authority to the side, and this is where writers, editors, you know, where, where these people would come in and say, hey, Captain America respects all life and would never take a life. That's the comic code authority talking more than Steve Rogers. Steve was, again, prepared to put on a uniform in olive drab and pick up an M1 Garand rifle and go to the European theater and kill Nazis. Shoot and kill Nazis. He was prepared to do that. He didn't get that opportunity because of his physical ailments, and then he becomes Captain America. But if you look at 1940s Captain America, 1940s USA comics, uh, all select comics, the covers that Captain America appeared in and on, you will see him with a machine gun, with grenades, with a flamethrower. There are at least a dozen different covers where Cap is armed with the appropriate weapon at the time, fighting the Germans, fighting the Japanese, fighting the Italians. So it was war, that's okay. After the war is over and Cap's opponents are no longer nations with which we are at war, the nature of his opponents change and the natures of the stories change. It's hard to balance that. It, it, it's like to say, what if Captain America were created out of scratch during 9-11? Would Cap have been in the Middle East actually killing Middle Easterners? Or... Since we already had Cap at the time, you know, Cap counsels restraint. He says, hey, just because these people are Middle Eastern extraction here in America, this man's not the enemy. He didn't destroy the towers. These people aren't the enemy. They didn't destroy the towers. We need to exercise restraint and not just beat people up based on their ethnicity. That's the difference of 50 plus years of storytelling, though. So the question you're asking is, really, who's writing Cap, and when are they writing Cap? I'm a casual reader. I don't know who's writing Cap, and I don't know when they're writing Cap. I read the stories. See, so again, it's, you know, I, I, I get your point in terms of, you know, for example, The Flash with, you know, the, the lineage, you know, grandfather to grandson. Uh-huh. But how much... Of that symbol of the Flash carries on. Well, versus the because it's it's a little less of the symbology and more of the actual character. I'm going to call it persona. Uh, Jay Garrick was the Flash of the 1940s. 
and Barry Allen took over as the Flash in the in 1956 is when Barry Allen first appears. Now you can modernize the character, which is kind of necessary. Otherwise, he ends up being ridiculously old. Uh, when Barry is believed to be dead, when he is lost to the Speed Force, Wally West takes over. Now, Wally West is really more of your Flash. That's the Flash of the Justice League animated series. Uh, in comics, he had already been the Flash for several years, but you're most familiar with the Justice League animated series and going forward. So Wally is the third person to carry the torch of being the Flash. What does the Flash mean? Well, that's actually very, very subjective. The Flash could be seen as a symbol of justice for Central City or Central and Keystone City because they're twin cities. Uh, he could be seen as... A, a cornerstone of the Justice League of America, um, or even the Justice League as a worldwide peacekeeping organization. What does the Flash mean can take on different meanings. Um, See, and that's kind of my point, though, in in this this line of dialogue, where some of the not necessarily smaller slash lesser known characters that are are more particular to a certain region or geography or team up that are are maybe a little less known everyone knows cap everyone knows superman everyone knows wonder woman everyone knows batman not just because of the characters but because of the symbology and what they stand for sure well let, let's take wonder woman and captain america for a split second just i'm, I'm just going to make a, a very quick metaphor uh what if captain america 1941 to the end of World War II. So there's Captain America and Cap mysteriously disappears. Now, I'm going to take Wonder Woman as if she could be a Marvel character for the purpose of this discussion. Wonder Woman with her, you know, star-spangled skirt or tap shorts, you know, however you prefer her costume to appear. Wonder Woman has an iconically American look to her as well, despite her Greco-Roman origins. Well, would you permit Wonder Woman to take up a shield, blessed by the Greek gods, with her star-spangled leather skirt and her eagle breastplate and call herself Captain America and pick up where Steve Rogers left off? Yes, please. I'll take that. I would also be okay with that. Now, there are some people who are like, oh, yeah, flipping the table over because why is Captain America a woman now? Well, it's because it is a woman who happens to have mythological super strength that has decided to pick up where the old legend left off. See, and, I'd be okay with that. And that's the power of the symbol and the meaning behind the symbol. Now, in other cases, you have extremely well-known, extremely popular characters. Let's take Wolverine, for example. Wolverine is truthfully representational of nothing. Um, he is a great character. He has excellent stories. He is responsible for some very good character-driven, very dramatic, heavy pieces. The Claremont uh, Frank Miller Wolverine miniseries from 1982, for example. Wolverine Enemy of the State, that's another good story. There are a lot of good Wolverine stories. For sure. But... You can't really wrap Wolverine in something and say he's representative of all mutants because he's not. He doesn't represent Banshee from Ireland or Colossus from Russia or 
Sunfire from Japan. He doesn't represent or speak for anybody, but he defends the mutant as an underdog. All right, well, is it the fact that he's willing to fight for an underdog? Is that enough symbology? But if Wolverine died, thank you, Charles Soule, and his costume <laughs> were taken over by somebody else, Laura Kinney, X-23. She has carried on the legacy, but she is still ultimately symbolic and representational of nothing. She is wearing the Wolverine costume and carrying the Wolverine name, fighting for the underdog, fighting with the X-Men, but she's not a star-spangled, all mutants are represented by me, because again, all mutants aren't represented by any one mutant. See, but that's, as much as Magneto would like us to believe otherwise. Right. <laughs> See, but that's that's kind of my point, though, and and you just kind of help make my point for me is just because someone picks up the mantle of mm-hmm. does not mean that they are representative of the same. So, sure, okay. For example, uh, 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 Robin to Nightwing. You know, Robin under the tutelage of Batman with a certain mindset and understanding of how the world works and this is right and this is wrong and this is how we do things hits his period and switches over to Nightwing which is a little bit darker a little more black and white a little more violent and a little more angry same well, actually, character wearing the mantle totally different well different mantle it's the same character now here's the thing you were almost right until you got to the last point Dick Grayson isn't angry anymore he has achieved whatever personal breakthrough he needs to achieve to not be angry at the world. He's not Jessica Jones. You know, he, he's, he's not that character. Um, he's okay with himself and the world and his place in the world. And he understands he's not Bruce Wayne. He has learned from Bruce and he is indebted to Bruce for what Bruce has taught him, for what opportunities Bruce has brought before him. He has taken everything that he has learned plus what he already knew and blended them. Robin to Nightwing, this is the Dick Grayson transition into he's like, I've left behind my childhood. Robin is less of an identity and it is more representational of my childhood. I have left that to the next person, Jason Todd, who left it to the next person, Tim Drake who left it to the next person, Damian Wayne. Um, I'm sorry, I skipped over Stephanie Brown. Stephanie Brown, then Damian Wayne. Uh, and I haven't mentioned Carrie Kelly. That's the Dark Knight, that's the future. There have been multiple Robins is the point. And that Robin is kind of representational of a pupa stage, if you will. And then all of these characters erupted from their pupa stage and went forward into a greater identity. Dick Grayson as Nightwing, Jason Todd as Red Hood, Tim Drake as Red Robin, at Stephanie Brown, and, and on and on. Damian Wayne is still in the Robin phase right now. Damian has his eyes fixed on his father's mantle. Damian wants to be Batman when the time comes for him to be Batman. That is, he's looking at it as father to son. He wants to be deserving. He is passionate. He is hungry. He's devious and conniving about it almost. He wants to be Batman. And he doesn't want anybody getting in the way of him becoming Batman. 
Hopefully by that point in time, he will have learned the lessons that he needs to learn. The question is, when Damian Wayne isn't 12 years old anymore, will the writers, the editors, and the fan-based audience, will we allow Bruce Wayne to go quietly into the night and let someone else be Batman forever and into perpetuity? Which is a question that we'll simply have to wait and see. Yeah, but you know, but it, again, it all ties together, and and you know, again, I know, I know you're a little, you know, a lot more passionate than I am about the comic books in general, and I'm again looking at it from from the eyes of of someone who appreciates it but isn't so passionate about it. Right. So, I mean, I well, look, <laughs> look at it this way. Jake Eric is the Flash of the 1940s. You know less about him because you're not old enough to have read his stories. Most of his stories have been put in front of you in order for you to read them. Barry Allen is the Flash of the quote-unquote modern era, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, and then Barry Allen is believed to be dead and gone, and then here comes Wally West. Wally is the Flash that you're familiar with. Now, you know that Wally was once Kid Flash, he was enabled to grow the few years necessary into adulthood. But the nature of comic book stories don't allow the adult characters to age too severely. So something drastic has to happen, like Crisis on Infinite Earths, yeah. and that's where a character dies, and then well, your and, kid and, sidekick takes over. And, and my, my, uh, my opinion is that... Characters can age. Now they can age a little bit slow, more slowly than a normal human, than, right. than, than the real world, fine. But I, it, it's my contention that they can, in fact, you know, tell a good story. And that's, you know, going back to what I said earlier about JSA, you can, you can have these characters age and still play a great part, you know, becoming a mentor to the next generation. Because, hey, look, you know, here we are, you know, we age, and here in the real world... Uh, we age and, and and we take on new roles and and it's uh, I, we find these sorts of, of stories you know useful in our own lives and reflective of our own lives. I, I agree with you completely. I would point out that we as fans are also somewhat resistant to the concept of either a advancing the character's age too greatly because you know you want your Peter Parker Spider-Man. You like Miles Morales. I like Miles Morales. Miles Morales is a great character. Yeah. Brian Michael Bendis gave us Miles Morales in Ultimate Spider-Man. That was a successful passing of the torch from Ultimate Peter Parker to Ultimate Miles Morales. But in the main universe, which is the universe, the 616, oh, Peter Parker better not freaking die, right? No, 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 not... no, 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 no. And, 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 and that's the thing. You know, so many people will say, no, Peter... So many people will say, no, Peter Parker should not fucking die. And I, I, I say, no, you know, here, you know, here we are. He was, he was, uh, he was 15 in 1962. Now I don't, I'm not saying that he should be, uh, you know, uh, proportionately aged, but, you know, maybe, you know, maybe he was, you know, 25 in, you know, 1990. He should be he should be older than me is what I'm saying. 
Um, and I and I'm totally fine with that. And if and if Peter Parker, you know, if they tell a good uh, Spider-Man death story. Now, granted, I want him to survive. I don't want him to go out. You know, oh, you know, here's the, you know, you know, here's Harry Osborn, you know, going crazy and on on the, you know, on on the green juice once again or whatever. Um, well, but- you know, I, I think that I I believe that you would appreciate a very well done character-driven, dramatic story where, say, Peter died defending Mary Jane and Aunt May and Harry Osborne and Betty Brandt and little baby, whatever the baby's name is, <laughs> from the Sinister 16. Well, sure. And, and, and the thing, you know, where, where I'm going is, you know, you have these stories, these, these, these future stories like your, your, uh, uh, your um, the, the, whatever it was called, the next universe or whatever. Um, the MC2 MC2 with MC2. the it was Avengers next that I was thinking of the yep. MC2 universe where where you had uh, Spider Girl yep. um the the Mayday Parker yeah. now granted that's not the same uh that that's not the same character as we have in the the current alternate universe of of Spider-Man renew and Mary vows. Jane renew your vows uh, which is actually a very good story. I wish it weren't. I kind of don't want to have another <laughs> fucking Spider-Man comic, honestly. But it's good, and so I'm going to continue to get it. Damn it! <laughs> but my, my my point is, I you know I want I you know I want to see a, you know an old Spider-Man. I want to see an old Peter Parker. You know who has lost his leg or whatever. It doesn't matter. You know who is no longer in the game, but provides a mentorship. You know whether it's to Miles Morales. Now I, I think he's probably you know by this you know but by this future date, um, you know he's done with with Miles because Miles is the you know the full on Spider Man right. But you know providing it to either his child or his grandchild or whatever, and you know have him have him still kicking around for as long as is viable, you know in the Marvel universe as a character, but not as Spider Man. Though you know the the Spider Man. Is a is is good as a symbol, much as you were saying earlier, Mark. It's it's important to continue that symbol, but it's not important to continue to have that same person because that's not how the world works. And it, I, I feel that it's it's more valuable to to me as as a mortal to not uh, to not expect uh, my 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 heroes to be immortal. And and that's you know going to pick on you now for a second. So. You're you're obviously a, a huge Spider-Man fan. You, you know, maybe maybe a half a step off from where you are with uh, Doctor Who and Walking Dead, but the the Peter Parker Spider-Man and everything that Peter Parker had to deal with being the extra smart kid, kind of being the social outcast, being kind of the the clumsy nerdy scientist guy in the in a time when that simply wasn't cool yeah who suddenly you know has has you know the bite from the red of active spider and because of his own personal experience galvanizing him to to go off and do what he does and everything that stands for versus Miles morales miles morales still spider-man but these different iterations of these characters with you know their different goals their different mindsets their different backgrounds their their different would be end games meaning different things to different groups of people versus going back to like cap or superman that is a a universal 
or a more universal, this is what this character slash symbol means to most everybody. Well, I, I think it's, and it's important to, you use the phrase endgame. And this, I think, w- will help change the mentality. No hero that picks up their mantle actually has in mind that the mantle is going to have a finite ending point. This is a never-ending struggle. This is an ongoing battle for justice until I can't battle anymore. So Batman becomes Batman not to avenge his parents' murders and stop there. He's going to keep avenging murders into perpetuity until he cannot anymore. The symbol of the bat is to terrify his opponents. Finger quotes in the air. Criminals are a cowardly and superstitious lot. And so the bat becomes what he uses to frighten them. The dark costume, the black cape, etc., etc. Um, you know, the, the very, the, the ability to appear and disappear ninja-like. You know, I mean, there are people who believe the bat has vampiric powers or whatever it is they... Batman uses these things to foster fear among his enemies. But then to Jim Gordon, hey, I'm on your side. Let me help you investigate this murder. Let me help you look into the underpinnings of this crime. We're going to solve this together. I'm on the side of the police. I'm on the side of justice. And as much as I can be on the side of law and order. I'm not going to support corruption in the police department, but you're a good cop. I'm going to help you. Superman is not in this for a beginning, middle, and end of his story. He's going to continue to do what he does into perpetuity. Spider-Man, with great power, must always come great responsibility. Spider-Man has used his identity for glory and fame and fortune, and he saw where it got him. He got full of himself, and Ben Parker died because he could have prevented that tragic death, but he didn't. And so... In his own mind, that has put the shackles on him into perpetuity. And now because of that, because he had that moment of hubris, he can't get out of this. He's got to be Spider-Man forever. Because if he isn't, if there's a moment where Peter Parker turns his face away from responsibility, somebody dies. And he can't have that. Other characters use their personas not as tragically, not as deeply but they still uphold their various, you know, law and order, justice, or not even necessarily law, but hey, how about just simply order? Um, so that's in there too. The, the different mantle depends on the character. And that mantle, maybe it can be passed on. Maybe Mr. Fantastic, Reed Richards, will pass on the mantle of Mr. Fantastic to Franklin Richards, or maybe he will not. It's what he calls himself, and if Franklin chooses not to be Mr. Fantastic, then great. Something to understand is that the person who grabs the torch and runs forward with it chose in part to do so. Uh, It wasn't forced on them. Captain America didn't tell Bucky Barnes, the Winter Soldier, you have to be Captain America. Bucky chose to wear that onus and wear that costume and carry that shield. In honor of his very best friend, yes, to continue and and propagate the symbology of Captain America, to propagate the symbology again the way he saw fit, because Cap wasn't there to enforce it. 
Part of this, too, I'm passing on the mantle. Barry's mantle of the Flash is picked up by Wally. Wally decides to do this. Barry is already dead. He's not there to tell Wally how to be the Flash. He's not there to tell Wally what to do with the mantle of the Flash. Wally decides, I'm going to live my life the way I think Barry would live his life. And again, with Captain America, Winter Soldier chooses to take up the shield, chooses to continue to give us a Captain America, but he's going to do it his own way. He chooses to wear a gun as well, which Steve Rogers did not. The other Captain Americas in between, each one of them tried to follow what they believed the morality of Steve Rogers was, but in every single case, none of them had Steve Rogers over their shoulders. So William Nasland went with what he knew about Cap, but Cap was already frozen. He had to extrapolate. Jeff Mace, the Patriot, had to extrapolate. And the fourth Captain America of the 1950s, he was definitely extrapolating. The anti-commie Cap, he was making it up as he went along. Uh, what's his face? Uh, Jack Daniels, uh, a.k.a. Uh, U.S. agent. Um, he was most assuredly, <laughs> at first, he didn't even respect Steve Rogers as a person. He thought Captain America was an old, tired symbol, and it was time for Cap to step aside and let a new guy take over. Let a young guy take over. I got super strength. I got jazzed up by the power broker. You are yesterday's news. I am hip and happening. I'm the super patriot. And so John Walker, a.k.a. Jack Daniels, uh, John Walker takes over his cap, and then he starts to realize, hey, this is serious business. That's Steve Rogers. I had no idea what he was under. And he tried to carry the weight with no one to really tell him anything. And he was only as successful as he was. And each time Steve Rogers stepped back into the role. But Steve was supplanted again and again. Uh, Winter Soldier stepped in and now Sam Wilson has stepped in. But Steve Rogers doesn't sit over their shoulder and tell them what to do. They're extrapolating they are thinking, what would Steve do without Steve telling them, hey, this is what I would do. <laughs> right, because at that point, all he can do is, is be who he was and try to be an example and lead with that example. If he's there to even lead. Now, in the case of Sam Wilson, he is there. But Steve respects Sam enough. He's not going to sit there and tell him, hey, Sam, this is what I would do. Don't do that. No, no, Sam is his own man, and Steve respects that. So Steve is over here running S.H.I.E.L.D. as Captain America, and he's letting Sam be Captain America in the streets the way that Sam is being Captain America. We have Nick Spencer, the writer, writing two different people. The lady smasher in the sheets. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, you know, they both have some romantic inclinations for quick Hey, I want to ask before we before we uh, wrap this up for today. Uh, I was reading uh, a recent uh, Thunderbolts, um, and it seems like uh, Kubik. Kubik, yeah. Kubik. Yeah. Um, did she undo the hydra hydraization of Cap? No, that has not been undone. 
she did it, but she hasn't undone it. Okay, because I was I, I was I was reading and I was like, because uh, I don't remember who it was. I don't know. It's somebody somebody said to uh, to Steve, you know, oh you you know you owe you know Kobik for your you know she she fixed your life. What they're talking about is when she reinvigorated the super soldier serum. Oh, okay. So a fixed, fixed air quotes, fixed your life. Yeah. yeah sorry, Steve. Now you've been a Hydra agent because uh, Kobik, the cute little girl, has uh, totally rewritten your history, and hopefully she will undo that at some point. Well, at some point, sure. But you know, bear in mind she's rewritten Steve's history under the auspices of the Red Skull, and the Red Skull, charismatic mofo that he is, was able to sweet-talk her and offer balloons and candy and unicorns and, oh, hey, uh, incidentally, take my greatest enemy and rewrite his life and make him my body servant. <laughs> I know how those how those, uh, those, those sort of charismatic individuals with the, uh, the warm-toned uh, faces... Uh, you know they, they they have a they have an influence on the uh, you know on the world unfortunately these days and uh, it's 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 uh, let me just say sad it's it's bigly sad. Well, don't worry, Kev. I won't let the Red Skull rewrite the details of your life. My life is uh, is pretty awesome overall. I mean, you know, I've, I've had some dips. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> That's uh, so, you know I've had the uh, the 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 uh, proper uh, comparison to say oh yeah I got it good now because woo <laughs> shit has been crazy and I you know and I've I've been uh, in in dire straits before. Well, uh, before we close, I I wanted to give our readers something our listeners rather our readers our listeners something to look forward to. Kevin and I were talking. Troy is going to transcribe this entire thing, and you can read it. No, he's not. <laughs> no, that's not going to happen. Uh, but Kevin and I were talking about uh, some of the chains of events in the Marvel Universe. We'll do that next time, because that's going to be in a while. Right, you know, so, like, it, for those fans who were there at the beginning of uh, the Illuminati into Civil War, Civil War into the Initiative, Initiative into the Dark... Uh, Secret invasion, secret invasion into Dark Reign, Dark Reign into the siege, etc., etc., into the heroic age, and then everything that came after. Uh, I did accidentally skip over fear itself, but fear itself, etc. Uh, so, right, right. So we were uh, we were going to talk a little bit about those mega events, uh, leading one from the next, and then into the incursions into the Jonathan Hickman Avengers, New Avengers, into Secret Wars, Secret Wars Trey, uh, you know, for lack of something better to call it, Secret Wars into Civil War II and IVX and Monsters Unleashed and the current ongoing, the really, the what more mini the events. Thing? What was that, yeah, the mil- mini events. What was the villain thing called? Where, where, they, were, uh, the, where they were in Wayward Pines. Oh, yes. Uh, the, um, oh, gee, standoff. Damn. Standoff. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I forget how far behind me Kevin is sometimes. I, you know, you know, it's funny, Troy. I got to, uh, I, you know, I've been, I've been trying to catch up on all this stuff lately, and I'm like, wh- I've got a bunch of standoff comics. Where the hell are they? They're in some box that I am not, so I'm not reading things in order. It's very frustrating. 
the problem that you have with standoff, Kevin, is that standoff dashes between Captain America and the Avengers, you know, the Avengers-related titles. There is an Alpha and there is an Omega. Those are the bookends, but in between are the regular Avengers, the regular Sam Wilson, Captain America, Iron Man, etc. Yeah, and and that was the, you know that was kind of a fun thing. And by the way, listeners, if you have not read these these comics, but have uh, have uh, watched things like Wayward Pines or I mean The Prisoner. <laughs> Things like this where you're like, hey, what's really going on? Why am I in this town? What's, you know, uh, uh, gosh, there was another there was another single season uh, show recently that was that was pretty damn good. Um, uh, that was a similar sort of thing where it was like all these people. Hey, where how did I get here? I don't know, but I'm, I live in this town and I can't possibly leave it, um, which, you know, which is similar to standoff. It was it was a really uh, interesting um, and honestly, kind of, you know, Marvel has done things really big sometimes. You know, you, we had, the, you know, this the Secret Wars three, right? Or not Secret Wars? Yeah, Secret Wars. Yeah. Secret Wars three, and you know, it didn't say three. Um, Secret War twenty fifteen, and that had so many spinoffs, and oh my god, it was honestly they overdid it. Now the 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 the, the comic itself was was actually very good, and many of the spinoffs were very good. But there were so many spinoffs that it was a bit burdensome to people like me who tried to buy every damn thing. I did buy everything, and I can tell you this. While, yes, there were a lot of things to buy, simultaneously, what you didn't have to buy was the regular Avengers, the regular new Avengers, the regular Thor, the regular Iron Man, the regular everything almost everything there's only a couple of things that continued things like uh i want to say spider woman hawkeye electra electra magneto uh loki uncanny avengers there were a few things that carried the last days headline that didn't quite they, they wanted to wrap up and they were like wait a minute wait a minute we're going to continue on because we still need to wrap up we've still got some story here Bingo. There were still some things where the writers weren't ready to wrap it up yet, and so the last days continued as if they were precursor to Secret Wars itself. And then Secret Wars itself, while it was very good, were the – God, what was that, nine issues? But it was so horribly delayed. Um, I sympathize with the average reader because the average reader would have been like, where is this? You know, why isn't you – know, God, why has it been so long since this book came out? Well, we have a lot going on. The right, the creative team has a lot to balance with all of the other creative teams, and they're trying. This book is trying to not spoil this book, and this book is tied to this book. So be patient, be patient, be patient. Something on that size wasn't attempted. I think the the, the one Marvel book that might have come close to that, other than the Age of Apocalypse really was Secret Wars 2. And Secret Wars 2 ran through the other books ongoing, plus the Secret Wars 2 itself. It didn't interrupt the ongoing books the way Secret Wars 3 did. Right. That is totally true. Well, hey, uh, next time... We will uh, we we will talk about some uh, some ongoing series and and how they interrelated and how we got from uh, from there to here, 
Um, and, and maybe um, sometime soon I would like to talk about a, a, a topic of conversation I would like to talk to you about, Troy, is uh, all of the, the, the excellent kid comics. Like the, the, the new readers comics, whether, whether you're a kid or you're a teenager or you're just, just playing new to the Marvel Universe, you can jump on with one of these new characters, um, you know, like uh, Sam Alexander Nova or, or, uh, or Ms. Marvel or the, the, the Unstoppable Wasp or, yeah. or uh, uh, what, what, what am I forgetting, uh, Moon, uh, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Lighter-hearted books, and I say lighter-hearted not to disparage them or make fun of them. I enjoy Patsy Walker Hellcat, and so do my cats. I also enjoy Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. Um, these are fun. They're not necessarily all-ages books, but there's no real objectionable content. So they can be enjoyed by younger readers. They can also be enjoyed by tween readers. Uh, parents, you might check them out yourselves, not because there's content to be concerned about, but because they're just simply fun, and maybe you need a little fun in your life, too. Excellent. So that's some, some of the things we've got coming up uh, coming up on our other channel. By the way, uh, listeners, if you have not already, please do also subscribe. Uh, we've got multiple RSS feeds, so whether you're subscribing on iTunes or you're directly subscribing to our RSS feeds. If you just if you go to uh, uh, podcast2.rss off of comicsonline.com, or you you find it however you find it, and you just Google it up. Uh, the the Comics Online Pirate Radio feed has multiple shows, not just you know the Comics Online podcast like uh, I've been doing for the past almost nine years, but uh, but also uh, th these are this is Mike Lunsford's baby, or Mike Lunsford and 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 my uh, you know, I have to give him prim primary credit because uh, because he's been the primary guy. But uh, his pirate radio. So we've got regular pirate radio that is a catch-all of everything. You've got sports shows. You've got relationship shows. You've got food shows. Um, there's and and also lots of stuff that uh, that falls into the the general comics online everything geek pop culture banner. Um, we've got a lot of stuff going on. Um, and, and also uh, stay tuned to, uh, to both channels for a lot of upcoming uh, interviews with, uh, with industry professionals, whether they be celebrities or no. Um, we've, got, we've got a lot of stuff coming up uh, for you. And, of course, uh, as Troy mentioned earlier, we've got the YouTube channel. Not only does Comics Online have our, our YouTube channel, but also please visit Troy David if you've enjoyed his uh, breadth and depth of knowledge. It is staggering. Staggering as it might seem, uh, on on this show it is even more so when he gets when he gets narrow focused like a like a laser. This man, he is he is uh, what's the name of the living laser, Troy? Arthur Parks. See, Ar he is the Arthur Parks uh, on his from Avengers number thirty four. Uh, <laughs> Troy uh, Troy focuses in on a specific subject. Uh, every week, sometimes multi multiple shows every week, depending on uh, how crazy he's getting uh, with uh, uh, he and, uh, and 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 his uh, collaborator uh, Matt go in and put together a lovely little segment. It's 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 very digestible, much shorter than this on YouTube, and that and, and you can look up on YouTube under Flashback Comics. 
um, you will enjoy them. If you're if you're thinking, oh, what about? I want to know the 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 real meat behind this character. Troy is going to tell you, and it's it's very topical, very very current, and the uh, and and he's got a lot of stuff to to watch, and it's re- you will really enjoy it. You know, the recently the most the most recent video that we put up was uh, on protecting your comic books. It's something that all comic collectors have in common. Whether you're Image, Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, whatever it is you collect, you want to put these things in bags, boards, boxes, dividers, etc. And so I spent a, a, a few minutes talking about protecting and preserving your collection. It's uh, it's useful to uh, the collector, both uh, the, the neophyte and the more advanced. And if you have any questions, you can always uh, e- email Troy ver- via the uh, the Comics Online email podcast at comicsonline.com. If you're thinking, you know what, does, does, is Troy full of shit? <laughs> the answer is usually no. I wish I could say that he was because sometimes he sounds like it, but not really. But anyway, hey, thank you so much for listening. Um, if you have friends who who listen to uh, who listen to listen to podcasts and send them send them our way of course but if you have if you have friends who are interested in comics and uh, are also uh, down for podcasts uh, please do send them our way we're going to be doing this uh, probably twice a month um, you know maybe more maybe less but uh, I hope you've enjoyed this and uh, yeah that's uh, that's it for this week we are uh, recording this Tuesday uh, March 28th, 2017. And so for Mark Lutz and Troy David Phillips, everybody at Flashback and Comics Online, and for everything geek pop culture, I'm Kevin Goswan, and this is Comics Online. Swag, 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 swag. Even giant or boobs. Swag, thousand times. Swag, thousand times. Swag, thousand times. Swag, 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 swag. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this podcast may not represent those of Comics Online, any participants, or any employers past, present, or future. If you would have thought otherwise without hearing this disclaimer, maybe you're not ready for this whole internet thing, much less hearing about awesome comics. Or maybe you're instead one of our smart and sexy fans who appreciate foul language, biting sarcasm, and everything geek pop culture. If you have comments or questions for the Comics Online podcasters, post on our Facebook page, tweet us on Twitter, or email us at podcast at comicsonline.com. Please visit Troy David on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and in person at Flashback Comics. All original material in this podcast, copyright Comics Online 2017. Alright guys, so here's a little bit of a bonus. Uh, It didn't fit with the rest of the show, but we have a conversation with Kevin and Troy discussing martial arts. For you, with the young woman who was her stunt double... I don't know. Probably <clears throat> as impressed or more. I mean, is it, what age was was uh, Laura Keene's? What, what's her What's her name? Uh, Daphne Keene. Daphne Keene is eleven, and she's eleven. And how old is the stunt double? Uh, I I don't remember. She 47. might also be eleven. Forty-seven. But uh, she's just teeny tiny. Cast. You know, Marvel Comics made me believe back in the day that you know you had you had dwarfism that was uh you know like puck with the long bones and you had other dwarfism where they were you know then those were midgets those were you know proportionate to a regular human just smaller like a fucking bonsai human but i don't think marvel was correct i think they uh you know they expected me to believe in you know Mutants or something. Sienna 
Novikov. Hang on a second. Anyway, she, the the yeah. stunts were amazing in that movie in in Logan, and yeah, uh, well, I love them. That's because that little girl that they got. Oh my God, she's terrifying. Is that little girl? You saw it too, Mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was great. I mean, she was tearing motherfuckers up. <clears throat> Sienna Novikov was born in Mobile, Alabama. Her father is an Olympic gold medal gymnast, and she kicks some serious ass. Grew up playing in her parents' gym. A state champion by the time she was six years old. She went on to win many state and regional championships. She also studied ballet, archery, and competitive fencing. She was in Dallas in 2016 to compete in U.S. Fencing Nationals. Oh, shit. And her event was canceled because of the shooting of five police officers. And she's how old? Uh, What's that? It didn't. Let me see. But obviously still at least a young girl. Yes. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> she was born in 2005. So she's... Twelve. Yeah, twelve. Twelve motherfucking years old, <laughs> and it's going and just shredding and so state championship fencing. So, what are we dude, doing with our lives, I, dude? Listen, <laughs> listen. When I was twenty-ish, uh, um, you know, when I was in my prime, one might say, when it comes to fencing, at the very least, I was about twenty, and uh, I went to the. Uh, I don't know. There was there was a regional competition. There's like a San Diego County competition at San Diego State, and I amazingly and this is a pretty deep the the depth of field was pretty strong. It was there was a lot of people. I don't remember maybe sixty people or something like that, maybe a hundred. I don't know. There was a lot of people. It was big to start out with, and it was uh, I want to say it was double elimination. I'm not sure. It might have been single. Anyway, uh, I got sixth overall out of everybody, and that was like, whoa. It, it, and I, I will be the first to admit that, you know, I got lucky, ultimately. I mean, sure, I had, I had some skill, <clears throat> obviously. You can, you know, get that far to, to not be able to, you know, to have, and this is foil fencing. Um, uh, but who won? Some little shithead who had been playing since birth, um, who was like 12 years old. This kid, I mean, he might have been 13 or 14, maybe, but he was a little dude. And um, funny thing is, I almost beat him. I had I had two hit. You know, it's a three hit match in in foil fencing. I I I got two hits on this kid, um, and it was because. And this is this is the cheesiest thing anybody could ever say. It's because of my non-standard fucking style. Like, I would fucking, you know, instead of having that perfect, tight style, I would be all over the place. And and Kid was like, I don't know how that's working. Because he was he was trained from birth, like I say, to just fucking, to, to be perfect. And somebody's imperfect and he doesn't know what to do. Well, he fucking adjusted, you know, in the course of... Pretty uh, quickly. He, changed, he adjusted pretty quickly um, and, uh, and decided to force me off the back. Now, I wasn't used to... Um, using electrified um, uh, equipment 
And so I was a little bit shaky when it came to that. Now, obviously, this kid, you know, had probably was probably using uh, electric equipment constantly, and uh, and he forced me off the back at least once, if not twice, and uh, and definitely got a good hit on me, you know, beyond that. But uh, the, the the game of fencing, and and I say this as someone who is fenced. Yeah. <clears throat> fencing loses a lot of its representation because it lacks the things that a sword lacks the the electronic touch which is very very sensitive oh yeah and the the component of safety and i'm a proponent of safety um but a rapier there are cuts that are completely insignificant Mm -hmm. that will score because of electronic fencing yeah but if you go back to the simplicity of the cut actually needs to be significant. Yeah. There isn't a way to measure a cut that would... Okay, that would have gone six inches into your rib cage and severed an artery and you'd be <laughs> bleeding to death as opposed to that touched the well, tip. And, and maybe, and maybe today, we might have, you know, we, you know, we could develop, you know, with today's technology and miniaturization and stuff like that, we mm-hmm. could totally, uh, you know, develop a bodysuit that would register exactly that, and, and and it would be wireless, so you wouldn't be tethered, right, right, and uh, <clears throat> you know, and you would have to go and have a certain amount of impact, you know, and so you'd have wireless weapon, uh, wireless outfit, and you would have to, uh, you know, take, uh, you know, all the computer would take that that all into account and really tell you, you know, who wins and who loses. There's, I, I don't know if you remember um, the, the the Frank Herbert novel Dune. Sure. Um, there, That's the only one I read. There's a passage uh, in in the first novel where Paul Atreides is recounting sword fighting that he learned from Duncan Idaho. It, he talks about, or I'm sorry, knife fighting. It's it's the knife fighting. He talks about the skilled knife fighter and how the knife fighter thinks of the knife on three points. He says, but the skilled knife fighter knows that the tip can also cut, uh, the edge can also stab. And the shearing guard can be used to trap the opponent's blade. So obviously where the tip would stab and the sure. edge would slice and the shearing guard protects your hand, yeah. that's why it's called a shearing guard, yeah. um, you can use these things multiply. And similarly with the sword, you know, where with the tip, instead of thrusting on the rapier, you could do a long, shallow cut, but mm-hmm. that long, shallow cut is very telling. Sure. If you lose you know eight inches on your arm yeah that's like that's going to impact your ability to use your arm in a protracted you know in a protracted duel sure um if you were to be able to use and you can't in electronic foil fencing but if i took the length of the blade and pushed it against your chest Mm -hmm. that would represent cutting you with the sharp edge of a rapier yeah 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 so i'm using the edge to stab, yeah. thus greatly increasing my stabbing surface. Uh, if my sword were sharp enough, that would mean something. Yeah. But we're talking electronic fencing, and my striking point is at the tip. <clears throat> Depending on whether you do French foil or, or French French grip, or Spanish yeah. English, uh, there's a there's there's a French technique. It's called uh, the corps de corps where you use the blade to entangle your opponent's blade. If you were doing sword and dagger, 
you could core to core move your opponent's weapon out of the way and right. take him with the dagger in close quarters. Um, but that's not a competitive sport. That's well, a, it is. It's just well, it's not the, an Olympic sport anyway. <clears throat> right? No, it's yeah. not Olympic. Um, and I think instead of using electronic scoring, it you you mark like your 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 dagger has a chalk or, or oil pen or something. Yeah. So like if I cut you, it leaves a mark on your chest protector. You know what? I have a question. Now you you you've studied uh, martial arts for a long time. Um, I, I was told, and I, this always seemed like complete horseshit to me. People were telling me that uh, that in in some schools or, or whatever that that people would would chalk that line on a uh, on a shinai. Uh, practice bamboo blade. Have you ever seen anybody chalking the line? I have not, but I've heard the same thing. I would not discount it, but most of the kendo that I have seen has been westernized as opposed to easternized. Oh yeah, mine is totally yeah. I'm, you know, we my my friends would just go. You know, we would go and buy shinai at the. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, at the police um, supply store, oh. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, and we would go and literally play in the street, you know. After you know, in the you know middle of the night, and uh, you know we had drastically different rules than uh, you know somebody an armored person. You know, here we you know we were going out in shorts and tennis shoes, and right. we were like, okay, no thrusts because you will fuck us up. You know, um, <laughs> it's it's gonna be get, get well. You know, the funny thing real, was real fast. When we when we would use Shanai, we thrusted all the time, and you know we're not wearing anything more than you know, more than a t-shirt, but nothing heavier, you know, nothing lighter than a heavy denim jacket. Yeah. Um, but the ability to thrust on someone wasn't going to do a significant amount of damage, and certainly not with the bamboo Shanai. It was different when we would use the full wooden boken. Yeah. And you know we sparred with each other all the time. Um, I actually still have some of my wooden swords from that time period. We, we would tape them with a contact tape uh, to represent the edge. And did that mark the other? It could. Okay. You, you could actually put something on that that would mark. Um, but a lot of times it was for reference sake so that the person holding the sword would remember that they needed to keep the edge toward their opponent. Yeah. <clears throat> And we taught some control techniques. Yeah. Um, when, when I would show people, you know, it's like, you know, this is how to hold the boken. This is, you know, it, it, at actual strikes. So you're not just waving the thing around like a baseball bat. I went and uh, and I bought a couple. I never had boken back in the day, but I bought a, a pair of them um, with the idea that I would go and uh, do something with them to for my Deadpool cosplay. Mm, I gotcha. Um but they're a little too bulky. They, they are very bulky, and it, God's honest truth, the Boken as a weapon is almost, in, in the hands of somebody who knows what they're doing, almost as dangerous as a steel sword. Well, you can certainly bludgeon the fuck out of somebody with that. You know, all I have to say to that is, you know, you know, what do we say when we meet the God of Death? <laughs> Not, Not today. today. <laughs> are those your son's? I've got something for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I was having a I was having a martial art conversation with somebody. Can I? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you, sir. Uh, and we were talking martial arts, 
<clears throat> especially how martial arts are taught in oh, I didn't mean to finish off your bottle I've got another bottle I've got several other of this same bottle I but you don't dude three. you don't just come huh? to your I've got two more over there you don't just come to your friend's house and drink up all his wine and shit. I mean, come on. <laughs> we're going. We're going through three quarters of a bottle. We're not going through uh, a yeah, case. half a case. Yeah. <laughs> so, no big um, deal. I, I, I don't know if you were familiar with this or if you knew this. Hmm. So, <clears throat> classically taught martial arts. And I say classic. I mean, you know, historically, hmm. um, you have pretty much one color of belt. Everybody gets a white belt. That's the OB. You tie your uniform shut with it. Sure. Uh, you wash your your gi, but you do not wash the obi. So the longer that you are a student, the dirtier your belt gets until it turns dark. Hmm. When uh, Gichun Funakoshi and uh, Jigoro Kano, Jigoro Kano was, the, was uh, ju- judo, jujitsu to judo. Okay. Uh, so it, Jigoro Kano is, is considered the father of modern judo. Gichin Funakoshi is considered uh, the founder of Shotokan Karate. They sort of formalized a belt ranking system. Their okay. system was very, very simple. White to brown to black. Um, so you're a white belt for a very, 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 very long time. And then you're a brown belt, you're an advanced student, and then you're a black belt, which many Westerners consider black belt to be you've achieved experts. No, you are not an expert. This is, think of it as a weeding out process. Um, I would have guessed that, okay, now you can train the young students. Is, is that what it is? Well, largely, it's now you can train anybody. Okay. So you, you have started as a white belt, and you have lasted to the black belt stage, mm-hmm. where most Americans think that, oh, now I'm an expert. Like, no, no, now your actual training begins. <laughs> that that everything leading up to the black belt, though, every, everything up to that brown belt level, that was to get the sissies out. That was to weed out the chafe and the people who were going to quit. Everybody left can now begin to learn something. So this is where it actually starts. At the first degree black belt, you don't know half as much as you think you do. Give you a for instance. Um... You start a karate class, and among the first thing you learn is how to effectively punch. Second would be how to effectively block that punch. Blocking is a concept that belongs to the Westerners. You don't actually block a punch. There are no blocks in karate, and there are people who will argue this point with me. That whole outside block, upper block, down block, whatever. Crap on crap is what it is. <laughs> okay. The block should be considered an aggressive parry. What you're actually doing, or what you should actually be doing, what you should be taught to do is when you block, you are punching the opponent's arm. You're not blocking it to not get hit. You're destroying the limb. So you're striking rather, you're striking the limb. rather than moving or even tying right. up. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then your opponent pulls his arm back. He's in a great deal of pain. And now you can gracefully bow. The fight's over because his arms hurt too much to keep fighting. Wow. He goes to kick you and you block his leg. What you're actually doing is punching his shin so hard that it hurts for him to stand up. So he hobbles back holding his injured leg. And you can bow and walk away from this fight. This is the philosophy of guys like Ichin Kunikoshi. He wants to get away from this conflict with as little violence as possible. 
but it is a conflict. It requires some violence. I've punched your leg and you're hopping on one foot like a madman, but you are no longer attacking me. So this fight is over. That's the point and purpose of those defensive techniques. <clears throat> what has happened is Westerners who have gotten a black belt and think they're experts have been teaching an imperfect system and they have perpetuated it. Oh. Then you get into, let's say, the 1960s, early 1970s, the advent of full contact karate, competitive karate from nation to nation. You take your best American fighters and you send them to Asia and they get their asses whipped because they have no, you know, we very quickly call foul on anything. It's like, you know, you, you don't try to hurt your students. You don't try to do a near permanent injury to your students. And this is the, the, this is the country that developed the culture of uh, litigation. <clears throat> oh, you hurt my kid. I'm going to sue you. Yeah. Well, in Asia, oh, you hurt my kid. I guess my kid's going to learn something now. <laughs> Damn. Now they know better. Um, I'm sure that they're reported or stories are told and they're very, very different from what actually happened. But uh, quote-unquote death matches you know, could have simply been training sessions where one student of greater skill than another student did enough damage, you know, it's like I threw a roundhouse kick and such and such didn't block it properly and I kicked him in the abdomen hard enough to perforate his intestine. Mm. It was simply a training exercise. But we were both at a level where I knew how to throw the kick and he should have known how to avoid it. And he didn't. All right. These things happen. They're hardly malicious. But, uh, but yeah, martial arts have a lot of myths within them that can that could stand to be debunked. Excuse me. Simultaneously with debunking the myths, though, <clears throat> there are people who would say things like, you know, oh well, you know, if you try to kick somebody in the head, then you're just going to get kicked in the crotch. And for the average kicking person, that's probably true. But there are kicking exponents who are so fast and so accurate that when they jump up in the air and spin around and kick you in the head, they're moving like a helicopter blade. You were getting hit in the temple and you were going down. There's nothing you could do about it. But this is a person who has practiced that kick on both legs 1,000 times every single day for the last five years. Yeah. So when that person kicks their foot six feet off the ground, they're hitting you and you can't stop it. <laughs> And the average kicker isn't doing that. They're, you know, like, oh, you know, I'm going to kick like Jean-Claude Van Damme. No, you're really not. <laughs> so, with all of that, mm -hmm. we uh, should introduce the show. Oh, have we been recording this whole time? Here we have. Oh, my God, we've been filling up the SD card. It's an SD card, right? Yeah. Here oh. we go. Here we go. Like Gamma Bombs, switch your internet browser to commonsonline.com.